Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit ByteRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Rebecca Silence, <coughs> and we'll be talking about her journey, her work, as well as her new book, Coming Back to Life, A Roadmap to Healing from Pain to Create the Life You Want. Now, more than ever, the world needs healing. Mindset work and inspiration are not enough to help people heal. Millions of Americans are self-medicating, suffering from mental health diagnoses, and are not getting the support that they need to function and lead healthy lives. Rebecca Silence is a certified world-class emotional healing coach, knows this pain. A survivor of childhood sexual sexual abuse, domestic abuse, and cancer while pregnant, she beat the odds. In coming back to life, she has created a roadmap that offers real tools, strategies, and support that will allow readers to get to the root of their pain patterns while also giving them hope, encouragement, and access to the light at the end of the dark tunnel that they may be stuck in or living in. For more than 13 years, Rebecca has helped people heal from heartbreak. Rebecca can coach you through the impossible and unimaginable pain you carry into confidence and leadership. She has learned how to be free from secrets, lies, and the past, and you can have that too. Her goal is for you to feel comfortable in your own skin live fully expressed, and be genuinely inspired. For more information, you can visit Rebecca's website, which is www.rebeccasilence.com, and that's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-H, silence.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Rebecca to the show. Good day, Rebecca. Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure. To, are you able to hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Okay, and am I coming through for you? <laughs> you sure are. Yes, yes. Great, good. Okay, so um, your, your story is, um, boy, <laughs> I don't know what, what, how to describe it. I mean, it's, you know, you have come through. You have come through so much um, and, you know, come through with uh, such um, light, you know, that it's, it's just a, it's a wonderful thing to see. And um, I'm really hoping that our, our readers will be able, our listeners, excuse me, will be able to, um, you know, get a sense of that and, and also by reading your book. So let's start with, first of all, you know, in your book, you you really you don't hold back. You know you 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 know when you're talking about the sexual abuse and all of the abuse. Um, did you have any 
reticence in putting that up there in, in detail like that? Oh, my goodness. Every fiber of my being avoided this for as many years as I could until it ultimately got to the point where my soul just said, listen, if you don't write this book, if you put it off any longer, it's essentially more emotional cancer you're inviting into your life, and it's, it's bigger than you. I mean, I think when we're sharing our personal story and we're still wounded and we're wanting to share the story in an effort to help heal those wounds, the trauma just continues to run us and lead our lives, and it's just not as impactful as the wound is healed, I'm telling my story from a healed place to connect people to their story and to the possibility that there can and will be a day where they can share their story from a place of it's healed, it's done. I'll never forget, one of my first coaches said to me, there's going to be a moment where you think about your childhood trauma and abuse, and it's just like past the butter, where you're able to say it, not in a nonchalant, dismissive way, but the the thing is gone. And so I put this off for many, many years, and then it was just time, and it was bigger than me, and it needed to be born, and I'm so grateful it was. Yeah, I'm glad it was, too, Um, you know, because we need, um, you know, people like you to tell their story. And for people who have experienced similar types of, um, you know, past, um, to be able to recognize that it's uh, not only okay to look at that, um, but it's really necessary in, in order to get onto that healing path. Amen. And, you know, one of the things I say in the book is your experience of life, and what I mean by that is the quality of your life and the day-to-day experience that you're having, I truly believe it's 100% based on how healed your past is. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, so many times we get the, um, the feeling that, you know, that the past is the past and, and the present and it's more, um, it's better to kind of focus on the present and the future. Um, but, you know, in your book you talk about, you know, there are, there's the, um, not only there's the emotional and there could be physical and, and spiritual weight that is carried um, from the past past that um, that needs to be lifted, you know, before, you know, you can happily, you know, live in the present and, and look toward a future. Well, absolutely. And, and the story of the past inevitably repeats with different characters until, you know, it's healed, different characters in different costumes. And, for anybody out there that experiences, especially their relationships, like Groundhog Day on repeat, the patterns just keep continuing. No matter how many times you end a bad relationship and start a new one, no matter how hard you try to work on it, your ability to write a new story is determined by whether or not you've healed the past story. And it really is possible, and this is ultimately the point of why I knew I had to write the book, to create a life that is so different that is so beyond what you knew and what you've known, and it's just what you want it to be, but not without doing the trauma work and the healing of the past work. And then I try to make it light and as painless as possible 
because it can be. We just we have to face mm-hmm. it to be able to move on and create something new. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now, I kind of want to look at, you know, each of the areas that, you know, affected you and, and that you have been able to heal. Um, one of them, you know, child abuse. I mean, that is a, a uh, God, it's a, an awful um, fact that, you know, it occurs far too, far too often and, and is probably one of the hardest things to look at from, you know, for, from a, for a person to look back to a childhood um, that had abuse in it. Um, one of the, in, in your book, you tell um, a little segment about your now. And yeah. when, when I first, when I first kind of came, started that section, um, it was like, Nana, oh wow, you know, and I have a very good friend who, is constantly telling me that his nana was his heart, you know, and that yeah. you know, that if uh, you know she didn't know better, that he was dropped straight from heaven, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. I started reading that section, and then it's like, whoop, wait a minute, <laughs> there was a little bit of a turn to it. Yeah. Um, so would you mind sharing that? Because I, I think you know there's. I mean, there's something to that because in the book you indicate it's like one of your first heartbreaks. Um, yeah. So can you can you just share that with the listeners, please? Yeah. Well, you know, there was so much toxic dysfunction happening in my house with my family of origin, and Nana was my paternal grandmother, and my safe space, and my hero, and I spent. So many weekends with her, and it was fun, and it was an adventure. And, you know, at home, while I think on some level I knew I was loved, it didn't feel that way. But with her, it did. So there was a lot of almost like a need to be with her as much as possible. And I was starved for love and attention that I wasn't getting at home, and she just filled that. And for so many years, it was Nana and I against the world. I mean, we used to drive around in the car and listen to music, and she would say the car was dancing. Now, I didn't know she was drunk. I just thought the car was dancing. Like, I had her glorified, and she could do no wrong. And there was an incident where at the house that she lived at, it was three stories, I knew there was basically one rule when I was with Nana. You don't go to the third floor. And my uncle lives on the third floor. And one day, um, I'm not sure if she was drunk or passed out. That's, that's my assumption that she was passed out because she was drunk. But regardless, she was asleep. And my uncle, you know, is an adult, and I'm seven. And he wanted me to go upstairs with him. And I'm seven, and he's an adult, and I do what I'm told. And I go upstairs, and I knew I'm not supposed to. But I just, I just froze, which was already a coping skill that I had mastered, you know, by seven. You know, you just freeze, you grin, you bear it, you get through it, you don't argue or that makes it worse. So anyways, she woke up and found him fondling me and I had never, ever, ever seen her upset. I had never, ever heard a harsh word or had her upset with me and just suddenly I didn't even know 
who this person was. And she's screaming at me. She's taking me down the stairs and, you know, basically mad at me in the situation because I should have known better. I got hit with a paddle. I ran out of the house. I climbed a tree. And I was just horrified and so confused because I just didn't understand, like, what was happening. And I say in the book, you know, like, where did Nana go? Who was this? And then ultimately it was even more traumatic because it, it was not long after that incident that she suddenly died of a heart attack very, very young, 58. And I didn't get to go to the funeral. I didn't get to say goodbye. So this one story, it shaped so much of my life. Betrayal with women became a theme. I can't even count how many best friends that were women all of a sudden turned on me, ghosted, disappeared over, you know, my lifetime after that. You know, and what I want people to understand is patterns do repeat until they heal. And this was a very confusing story for me that I didn't understand that resulted in me experiencing abandonment and worse, expecting betrayal from women until I go through this. Yeah, I mean that's you know when when I read through that, I mean to me it was um, it was a, an ex, a, like a perfect example of how how um, adults um, how their reactions you know to events in the child's life can be. Uh, so crucial in in you know the in the life of the person. I mean, in, in, like you said, in, in the repeat patterns, um, but also you know just in the the skewed kind of view of life, you know, and interactions, and especially with someone who was beloved, you know, and you know, and it, yeah. it, it really shows the idea of what. Love, you know, what, what is love? You know, if, if that was love, then whoa, you know, maybe I should think twice about it. Well, right. And, you know, my work is really targeted to the generational healers in the family. And my grandmother was only playing out to the best of her mm-hmm. ability, trying to manage right. patterns that she didn't want repeated. And without meaning to, she's abusive to try to stop victimization and I'll just say here that's one of the things about abuse cycles that I don't think is understood you know it isn't just victims abused and that's inappropriate and not okay when there's abuse people either become the perpetrator unconsciously this is all very 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 unconscious in an effort to take their power back or they become a victim and they either stay the perpetrator hating themselves or they stay the victim hating themselves until they understand, wait a minute, these aren't the only two options. But I don't think we talk enough about how the people that are being abusive were also abused and confused and are trying to take their power back powerlessly, which keeps them powerless and in the abuse cycle, but we don't understand this is what's happening. So it doesn't mean any of it's okay. I just hope that everyone listening can hear kind of the innocence and the simplicity around almost like the anatomy of the abuse cycle. And so, you know, I decided 
later on in life that I would be the one to break the patterns because I was unwilling to continue them. But my grandmother in this case, you know, I'm not even sure if she was aware, she's playing out inherited inherited generational trauma and passing it on to me. But that's exactly what was happening. Yeah, yeah, and that happens so often. I mean, I have seen it in, in you know, people that I know, um, in, in my family. You know, I, I, I've noticed, you know, the, um, like you say, the, the people who are acting abusive are basically playing out um, what they know, you know, and, and what they've experienced. And um, that it's, you know, unless, someone like you get to the point where it's like, wait a minute, you know, it stops with me. You know, the cycle um, stops with me. Um, and, like you say, becoming aware, you know, that it's um, and then, you know, uh, kind of a patterned um, uh, that's passed on that um, then, only then can you create a healthy pattern a healthy response and become a role model for healthy women. Yeah, and a new experience for yourself. And I think that's ultimately what the goal is because we just experience life through our wounds until they're healed. And that is normal and it's natural and no judgment here whatsoever. But my big message for everybody is it's not required to continue to live through your wounds. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Wow. And there was another situation, um, I, I believe it was in the section of the car ride, um, that you were a teen um, and riding with your aunt in a car, and she said some words to you that also had a, a major impact on on your self-perception. Can you, would you mind sharing that? Because I had one of those with my grandfather. (laughs) Absolutely. I was was with that one time and and, uh, uh, my my mother was divorced when I was young and all that kind of thing. My father was, you know, (laughs) alcoholic and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, my grandfather from Sicily, the old Italian, it was like, you know, the idea of a a divorced woman with three kids. and, and to me, it was like, oh, you're, you're a bastard and you're never going to amount to anything. And I mean, to this day, I mean, I can hear it in his voice. I'm going to hear the tone, you know, and, it, and of course that I've, you know, come to realize that this was, you know, his pattern, you know, from, from the old country and, and his views. Um, but in a way, though, it, um, kind of motivated me to say, I'll show you, old man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's rare. But I just want to say that's rare to be like, wait a minute. I am not going to let this be my story. But, yeah, back to the car ride. You know, I, I became a serial monogamous starting at age 14. Like, I have been in love with love for as long as I could remember, and desperate to have a healthy, healed, happy experience of love, regardless of my childhood. And, you know, I had my very first love, and I 
I talk about in the book, again, I was just so starved for love. I was like a tigress on the hunt. And I thought I had found my forever love and my safety and security and stability. And I was so happy. And this aunt, we were on our way to my grandmother's for a Sunday dinner. And this was the other grandmother's house, not Nana's. And my aunt just says to me, just so you know, he doesn't love you for your body. And I didn't know how to interpret that other than, well, then he must love me in spite of my body. And I was just devastated and leveled. And, you know, I had thought that he just loves me, all of me, and I was already trying to live and love in spite of my past. And now I'm getting a message that, you know, something's wrong with my body. So basically, you're lucky he loves you at all. He doesn't love you for your body. And it, it just ended up tormenting me. And I never spoke to that boyfriend about it, but I definitely put a wall up after that and questioned myself. And, you know, my, my journey with my body, there's a whole other chapter in the book about that, has been, you know, I, I think one of the darkest, most painful healing journeys of my life, just healing my relationship with my body. But when I heard those words from my aunt, and by the way, you know, I'm five foot two on a good day when I stand up really straight and I've done yoga, I come from a family of very tall, very thin, eating disordered women, and I just always felt like an outcast, um, especially physically, but for other reasons as well. And this just, it was so hurtful and it was so confronting because at that point it hadn't occurred to me that, you know, I need to be loved in spite of my body. And that became my story for decades after that, after that conversation in the car ride. Yeah. I mean, and it can, it can just, I mean, pop up at any time, you know, and, you know, and it's, until you work through that, and, and you know, and, and like you say in your book, you have a, a, a whole, you know, dedicated area to, to talking about your challenge with with weight, um, and you know that's a lot of people have that. I do myself, you know. So, um, you know, but it's one of those things where you know you you get to a point where you know you have to be, like I said in the introduction, um, that you really want people to feel comfortable in their skin and whatever skin that is. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was more just making my own body the scapegoat anytime something went wrong than it really had anything to do with weight. It was just easier to understand weight issues. It wasn't easy to understand my body was carrying all of my emotional pain and that's what felt so heavy and I haven't shared this in an interview I don't think at all yet but the original title of the book was I'm not too fat unless I look in the mirror Hmm. that was the original title because this was such a big (laughs) journey for me yeah wow um you know, I, I can understand why, you know, that would be a, a potential title, but I'm glad you chose it. ended up with the one that you did. <laughs> yes, me too. You know. This is a much healthier title. Yeah, but plus, uh, you know, it, it encompasses 
more of you, more facets than weight. Exactly. You know what I mean? It, it, yeah. Much more, much more to you <laughs> than that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Well, now, one of the other um, areas that you're a survivor of is domestic abuse. So can you maybe give us um, um, kind of an overview of what what that involved? Yeah. So I got pregnant when I was 23, and my oldest, uh, who's now 18, was actually a birth control baby. I mean, if if this child wasn't meant to be born. So I'm 23, <laughs> and I'm dating – this guy that I thought, you know what, this is really fun for now, but I knew there probably wasn't a future. And long story short, we got pregnant and, you know, decided we were going to go for it. We were going to get married and um, kind of hysterical. I live in Boulder, Colorado, and when I had my oldest and got married, I lived in Colorado at that time. Um, I've moved around a lot. So I was in Colorado, left, and now I'm back. And so my oldest and I were on a drive through the mountains and the mountain I got married on was called Lookout Mountain and my daughter looked at me and she goes, Mom, it said it right there. Look out. <laughs> it's the signs were there from the beginning. Oh my God, right? So just to give you on, you know, that little side note. So, you know, we get married. I'm six months pregnant and at the wedding and, you know, we were playing house and I Wanted to believe it was going to work. And, again, I loved love so much. I had this dream of family that was so not what I grew up with. And what I created in the first marriage was exactly what I grew up with, again, just with a different character and different costumes. And, you know, it started as verbal abuse. He was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And, you know, I did my best to be the responsible one, to put the smile on my face, to pretend like things were okay when they weren't. But then when it got physical, I got very confronted because my mother stayed in a situation that was abusive and a domestic violence marriage and kept us in it. And, you know, ultimately, one night, he came home drunk, and I said, I need you to leave, and he went after my daughter. He was going to take her with him in the car. And I screamed and cried, and no, you're not. And I got backhanded across the house, and that was it for me. I, I just, I was not going to keep my daughter in a scenario that put her at risk. I didn't have the self-esteem or the confidence yet to get out for me. But when I recognized very quickly me being in this situation kept her at risk, I knew it was time to go. And there. There were a lot more layers, financial abuse, you know, credit cards in my name maxed out that I didn't even know um, mm -hmm. were there until we were getting divorced and I'm looking at the reality of things. Um, you know, it, it, so on so many levels, there was abuse and violence in that marriage. But, you know, it was the ultimate, first of all, reality check that I wasn't as good of an actress as I thought. I thought I had everybody fooled. I thought on the outside, you know, looking in, nobody mm -hmm. would have been able to know what was going on. Well, when I told my book club I have to leave, 
50 people showed up at my house days later to move me out of the house into an apartment. They knew. Everybody got their spouses and other friends, and an army moved me and my two-year-old child and dog out of that house into an apartment. So I was not nearly as good of an actress as I thought, and it ultimately was a huge opportunity to meet myself and to see what I was capable of. I didn't think I'd be able to provide on my own for my child, and, you know, I never got child support all these years later, and I figured it out. I worked three jobs. I figured it out, and we made it. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you talk about, um, you know, that the idea of, quote, being found out, you know, that, that, uh, you know, like you say that, that your friends knew or at least had an inkling, you know, and I think, um, for some people who are in the situation like you were, you know, the idea of, you know, I can put on a good front so people won't know, um, that, um, you know, and that, you know, if they, quote, found out, then, you know, they would think less of me or, you know, all of the different kinds of self-judgment that one might want to put on oneself, that, um, that that is not the case. You know, that, like you say, that's when you found, you know, who you were and what you were capable of. Absolutely. And I think one of the most important pieces and ingredients in the healing process is support. We can't do it alone. And I was, I was leveled, literally on the floor, couldn't get up, emaciated at that point. I was anorexic. And, you know, I don't know how I would have survived that season without support. And I was such a giver and I was so wanting to serve but not able to receive because receiving I still had associated with you kind of take mm-hmm. the bad with the good. You take the abuse with the love. And, you know, the idea of receiving was just terrifying, terrifying to me. So I just made myself this machine of service that wouldn't receive. And I learned the value and the importance of support and reciprocity in that season. It, it you know, that's when I would say the seeds got planted. It took a while before I actually mm-hmm. could open up to receiving in the healthiest way. But the support piece of the story I just think is so important. And you get to see who really cares about you and values being there for you in those most difficult seasons. And, you know, sometimes the people you would expect to show up don't. And people you never would have expected, there they are. And just let yourself find one to three people in the darkest seasons and moments to lean on, to let support you, knowing it'll come back. You'll be there for them when that time comes as well. But don't push away support and try to be a hero doing it on your own when you're in your healing journey or if and when you find yourself in a dark moment or season. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we're about we're just past halfway through the show, Rebecca. So I want to take just a quick ninety-second break, and then when we come okay. back, I want to talk about that third area of survival, and that was with the cancer from when you were pregnant. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everyone, great. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us 
and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Rebecca Silence, and we're talking about her journey as well as her new book, Coming Back to Life, A Roadmap to Healing from Pain to Create the Life You Want. And again, you can find out more by visiting Rebecca's website, which is www.rebeccasilence.com. And Rebecca is R-E-B-E-C-C-A-H, silence.com. Okay, we're back, Rebecca. Hello. Great, good. You know, I have to kind of comment. Your last name, Silence, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. one of the things that is, I mean, it's kind of emblematic of trauma, you know, um, but it's, it's kind of like your work is to end silence in a way. Yes, yes, yes. We're giving you unsilenced and bringing your voice back. And this actually was the last name of my first husband. So I actually, you know, tell the story that for so long I was so committed to silence because I really believed that standing up to abuse made it worse for way too long. Uh, and so I was so committed to silence. I married a guy with the last name Silence, and then <laughs> I just can't tell you how much I love who I became as Rebecca Silence. Then I got on the radio. I was about to get married a second time, and the owner of the radio station said, oh, you're not changing your last name. <laughs> We're keeping Rebecca Silence. And I thought, yes, we are. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. Um, so the third um, challenge, you know, that you are a survivor of was with cancer, and that was while you were pregnant. So tell us about that ordeal. Um, that's a good word for it. You know, I say both of my girls saved my life at different seasons in different ways. You know, the oldest gave me a reason to become a better, more healed version of myself. And the second baby, um, I don't know how many years I had had cancer before we found it when I was pregnant with her, but certainly the pregnancy exacerbated things, and the type of cancer I had was a melanoma. 
And so the story is I was coaching a plastic surgeon and his wife, helping save their marriage, because that's what I do, is, is help save marriages and families. And the doctor said, I need you to come in at 7 a.m. tomorrow and let me take that off your arm. I know you're here to help me, but I don't like the looks of that, and I need you to come in first thing tomorrow and let me take this off. And I was, you know, um, getting close to the third trimester of my pregnancy, and I had seen the small on my arm changing. And, you know, a few years prior, I had asked my primary doctor for a dermatology consult, and he refused to give it to me at the time, saying he would just monitor it because it was a dark, flat spot, and I just knew that that's not good. And I asked him, and he um, denied my request for the referral. And I think the most important part of this part of the story is advocate for yourself. You know, who I was at the time of getting denied for the derm consult was someone who didn't have time to deal with it anyway. So I felt like, oh, I did my part. I asked. He said, no, I'm going about my life. I have too much going on. I don't have time for this. And, you know, the other thing that was really interesting is I had no symptoms. I wasn't sick. And I hadn't been sick for years. I had a thriving business, and life was perfect, great second marriage, you know, and I just, I didn't have time to deal with anything that wasn't ideal or what I believed you know, was worth my time. So long story short, I go in, we get this mole removed, and he biopsies it. And I'm thinking, all right, all right, all right. Like, even if it's skin cancer, they just cut it off, right? Like, I'll be fine. It, I didn't understand cancer, let alone melanoma. And, you know, interestingly, melanoma really wasn't that treatable at this at this time, which was eight years ago. 2014 is when I got diagnosed, um, and it came back. Basically, I'll back up. Because my client was my surgeon, he had contacts at major cancer hospitals. So I was very, very blessed to get in very, very quickly. For so many people, they're waiting months and months and months. And I got into the major cancer hospital a week after the results came back that it was, in fact, malignant and had a major surgery, they call it a wide excision, to remove as many margins and to go as deep as possible. And what I was told was that 95% chance this is stage one and there's not going to be anything else needed. So we had to wait for staging. When you have cancer, they have to stage it. They have to find out how far progressed it is, and it's zero to four. Mm -hmm. And so... We had an emergency C-section at 38 weeks so that the baby, you know, could stay in me as safely and as long as possible, and then I could get staged as soon as possible. And, you know, just the year before, I think, they still weren't testing lymph nodes when it came to melanoma. So they ended up testing my lymph nodes after the baby was born and there was cancer. It, it had already spread, so I was stage three, and the cancer was very progressed, and I can't tell you how grateful I am that I didn't know it was stage three while I was still pregnant, because it could have spread to the placenta, and it didn't. The baby was fine. She's a miracle. She's beautiful. She's healthy, and, you know, then once it came to light that this is stage three, there is no, we don't have time to deal with this. There is no, you know, turning the other cheek and putting a Band-Aid on the tumor. Um, we had we had to 
address it, and I had the fight of my life. I'm 19 surgeries in. Eight years later, there have been 19 of those big, wide excisions over the years. I had four or five or six surgeries and then chemo pretty much immediately after having the baby. So I went, um, again, into the fight of my life and what I call in, into the ultimate seminar. I mean, cancer was the place I met myself. And I, I remember thinking, it's easy to feel great and to be your best when life is going your way. But who are you going to be now, Becca? <laughs> who's, who's this version of you going to be that, you know, takes on cancer? And a couple of things that I attribute my living through this um, to are, number one, I knew I wasn't a statistic. They gave me a 5 to 10% chance to live. That was it. And, you know, they're helping us figure out my will and all of these things. And, you know, this is my husband's, you know, newborn baby and first wife. And now we're planning my will. But I knew, okay, even if I have only a 5% chance to live, there's a chance. And I am not a, a statistic. And I learned from the previous experience with the primary doctor, and I just knew I'm going to have to advocate for myself every step of the way. I'm going to have to let my body tell me, and this is where my journey with my body is so significant because my brain and my mindset did not save my life. My ability to be emotionally clear and regulated and able to access my body's wisdom so that I could listen to it, um, that saved my life. And I'm so grateful to be here. And then again, you know, support. And, and I did not, I did not follow the con conventional path. I ended up quitting chemo. And this is very controversial and I, I make it very clear. I am not telling anybody out there going through cancer, quit chemo. I just knew that chemo was killing me. And we had done so much mm -hmm. surgery that there was no evidence of disease in my body anymore. There was no, cancer that they could find in the scans, at this point, the chemo was preventative. So I did make the very, very, very difficult decision after getting to the point where all the nerves on my right leg had died as a side effect from chemo. I had what's called drop foot. I was in more pain than I can ever put into words, and I just knew they wanted me on chemo for a year. I was four months in. I knew if I was on it another second, I'd be dead. And so I did end up quitting chemo, and I did trust myself and, you know, my spiritual guidance, what I call God, I, I just trusted, and I really believe it saved my life. Yeah, wow. You know, you you have to be your own advocate. That's the one thing that, um, you know, I've, with all the people that I've had on my shows um, who have struggled with all kinds of illnesses, is that, you know, that you have to, you know, advocate for yourself. You have to know what it is that you want. You know, certainly listen to experts and, and evaluate, but, um, you know, don't necessarily, if you feel that, you know, you want to, like the first doctor, you know, denying the, the Durham consult, you know, that, you know, if, you know, if at that time if you felt, you know, even though you didn't, but if you had felt that that was, you know, not right, 
or that you know that you you know wanted to you know give another opinion, then definitely do that yeah. and, and advocate for it because you know um, there's no one better <laughs> at knowing you you know you than you you know as far as you know your body, what you feel, and 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 also your mental state has to come into play as well. Um, now. Um, the title of your book has a roadmap to healing. So, can you tell us a little bit about the idea of a roadmap? You know, and maybe you know what are maybe a couple of the strategies uh, that you feature in your book. Yeah, absolutely. So it's called a roadmap to heal from pain to create the life you want. Coming back to life, a roadmap to healing from pain to create the life you want, because. I really believe we all have the ability to create our own roadmap. There's not a right or a wrong way to live or to lead or to love or to heal. There's what works for you. And in my experience, you know, I've been helping people heal since 2002. We're so often, especially when we're in distress or when we're dealing with trauma, looking for somebody else to be the hero in our story or looking to somebody else to give us the answers. And I think, you know, with that example of the first doctor, I just believed him or I wanted to believe him that he knew better for me than I did. And so I just listened and and went on with my life. But what I know for sure is nobody knows better for you than you do. And there's no better way to know what you need than to heal your relationship with your body and to heal your relationship with your emotions. So a couple quick, um, you know, just practical examples in Chapter 2, which is the chapter where I talk about, you know, the trauma. So every chapter is hugged by my story. So at the beginning of every chapter and at the end of every chapter, there is a story of mine that on many levels I think people would assume are unrelated, but I put them in the same chapter to help people see how patterns repeat, and we don't even realize it's a pattern. So my story is in each chapter, beginning and end, to help you connect to your story. In the middle of the stories is my healing message, what I've learned, what I teach, and what's worked for me and countless clients over the years. And then at the very end, there are exercises. So You know, chapter two is about learning the difference between, you know, your emotions that are natural and healthy and human that you were born with versus your feelings about everything that's going on around you. So I think in Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, she teaches about 80-plus emotions. I teach five. That's it. Anger, fear, grief, joy, and excitement. And the reason I only teach five is because these are the emotions we have no control over. It's like emotional weather. They're not our fault. But if we don't have a healthy relationship with these emotions, we run from them, we get all clogged up and funky, we disconnect from our body, and we can't hear our body's guidance, and we can't let divine spiritual guidance come through us, through our body, when we're all clogged up and funky. Um, you know, I tell another story about, um, you know, a process I did assigned by a coach to just face myself in the mirror. So there's some mirror work. There's a lot of journaling. What I will tell people is every exercise in the book will change your life standalone. 
if you do all of it, oh, my God, are you healing generational trauma? Are you healing your relationships? You don't need both people to heal your relationships. When you're healed, your relationship can change. And then you can actually do these exercises with your partner. Um, but that's just a little bit of context about how the roadmap works. And the point is, by the end of the book, I want you to know yourself so much better so that when life happens, you know, I love to say the darkness is real, but so is the light. So when it's dark, there's still the light in you that's more powerful than anything else. And your right next correct aligned step for you. And I just want people knowing themselves better and what works for them better. And ultimately, I want to help people break through their survival personality and survival mode. And I think we get very confused growing up in a family of origin, becoming who we need to be to survive our family, thinking that that person we became to survive is who we are. And if you're suffering at all, you're in survival, and it's not who you are. It's who you became to survive. So I'm also very gently and lovingly walking people through how to face their survival self so they can let it unravel, release it, and emerge becoming who they decide to be. I don't think we wake up one day and we know who we are. I don't think we wake up one day and we find ourselves. I think it has to be a very deliberate and intentional, conscious choice. Who do I want to be? And you can ask yourself, what do I want for my life? Before you even ask, who, who do I want to be? That's a really big, difficult question for a lot of people. So I always encourage people to think about what do you want for your life? And then who would you have to be to create that? And then I will just also say, when our survival personality starts to die, it can really feel like you're going to die. Like when I was first facing the abuse that I went through as a child, in many ways, I would have rather died than face it. And in many ways, I felt like I was dying just by acknowledging it. But you're not going to die. That's the beginning of you being reborn. So just keep going. And I just put into one book, you know, my over 20 years worth of experience healing myself and other people to help you heal you. I think we all have an inner healer inside of us, and I want you accessing that inner healer, and I want you knowing yourself and loving yourself and trusting yourself like never before. And that's the roadmap you get, a path to all of that. Hmm, great. Now, I understand you're not a fan of fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> Correct. Correct. No, because I am a fan of authenticity. Right. And if you're faking it till you make it, yeah, that, that you know, authenticity never hurt anybody. It just shows you what's real. It's inauthenticity that is emotional cancer and toxic. Yeah. Yeah, when I read that, I chuckled to myself because I've never been a fan of that, you know. I mean, it's, you yeah. know, the idea you're trying to, you know, you fool your subconscious into thinking, you know, to denying, you know, what what is yeah. kind of in front of you. And, and, and that, to me, that just seemed to be kind of a, a foolish way of, of trying to make change, to make change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the last thing I want to ask you is um, about the idea of trauma 
informed care. So can you yeah. talk, you know, because um, when we look at our healthcare system, um, you know, when one thinks of trauma care, it's usually the the physical trauma that, that tends to, you know, kind of come to the forefront of thought when one talks about trauma care. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, your view of, you know, trauma, the need for more trauma-informed care? Thank you so much for asking this question. So, you know, I have worked in psychiatric hospitals. I have been, you know, a director in a drug and alcohol rehab facility for adults. I have been, you know, a, a trained therapist and counselor, and now I call myself an emotional healing and relationship coach because I really think those are the two areas that actually heal trauma. And I'll tell you, I think the biggest problem with how in the United States specifically we treat trauma care is we we treat a diagnosis and medication as, you know, the problem instead of it's really a symptom. You know, the, the diagnosis is a symptom, and I am not saying I am anti-medication, but I think we diagnose and medicate way too quickly, and we're not helping people heal through the age they got stuck in and the emotions that got stuck. And I think we think trauma has to mean, you know, really big stuff, and we're all, you know, we're all survivors of trauma. There's no one out there that's immune to trauma. And while there is real trauma, and I'm pretty extreme, obviously, in my story of trauma, if, you're, if you've ever been heartbroken, wherever you're heartbroken, you got stuck at an age, and stuck emotions are trapped, and it's keeping you disconnected from your soul and from possibility unnecessarily if you're suffering. So what I hope and pray for is that as a society will teach people, you know, how to, how to know when they're in trauma, when they're in a trauma or survival response. Fight, flight, fight, freeze. These are trauma responses. These are symptoms. These are ways of coping. You know, anything that isn't anger, grief, fear, joy, or excitement, that is, you know, how you're coping. And so we treat people you know, and teach how to manage and cope, not how to heal the root of the issue. So I take people into, let's get to the root, let's heal the stuck age, let's release the stuck emotion, and then as the adult, let's create a new narrative and a new story and a new identity. And I just think we need way more of all that. Yeah, I agree. Well, Rebecca, I really appreciate your time with us today and sharing your stories. Um, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who can identify with many of them, you know, um, that, uh, you know, that is useful to know that, you know, someone can, you know, experience the challenge and, you know, heal, you know, from yes. it and, and live a more fulfilled life. So thank you very, very much for your time, and, and I look forward to following you on, on social media platforms and your journey. Please do, and healing is not promised, but it is possible, and I do have a free gift for anyone watching. You can go to RebeccaSilence.com, and you can opt in to take my free 
Trigger Trauma Relief Method Masterclass. It's basically, you know, me walking you through everything I just shared about how I deal with trauma. We can take a trigger, and what I what I lovingly and sassily say is, it's time for you to learn how to make your triggers your bitch so that they're not, you know, owning <laughs> you. It's time for you to own them. So I have a Trigger Trauma Relief Method ready for you as soon as you press play at RebeccaSilence.com. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much. I like that. I like that, uh, <laughs> that visual. <laughs> so, thank, well, thank you, you so and, much and for having me. Sure you're very welcome. Yes, please. Again, again, everyone, today my special guest has been Rebecca Silence. You've been talking about her journey as well as her new book, Coming Back to Life, A Roadmap to Healing from Pain to Create the Life You Want. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, like she said, www.rebeccasilence.com, and that's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-H, silence.com. And definitely get that triggered and uh, turn the tables um, on trauma. So, everyone, thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bite Radio Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.